Hey, hey everyone, welcome to Infused Church Online. Today we are in part two of our series, Christmas at the Movies, where we're going to be looking at the story of the Polar Express and how we make decisions in the moments when we're afraid, we're concerned, and we don't know what the right option is. Stick around to find out how we do that. Christmas Eve, many years ago, I lay quietly in my bed. I did not rustle the sheets. I breathed slowly and silently. I was listening for a sound I was afraid I'd never hear. The ringing bells of Santa's sleigh. Santa would have to fly faster than the speed of light to get to everyone's house in one night. So? And to hold everyone's presents, his sled would have to be bigger than an ocean liner. Well, your brother said that? Well, he was just kidding you. He knows there's a Santa. He said he wasn't sure. He wasn't sure Santa was for real. Of course Santa's for real. He's as real as Christmas itself. But he won't come until you're sound asleep, young lady. <laughs> Sweet dreams. Santa will be here before you know it. So go to sleep.
Well, you coming? Where? Why, to the North Pole, of course. This is the Polar Express. All right, uh, so um, first off, I uh, apologize if uh, you were hoping I would preach in the ugly sweater. I figured it would probably be wise not to jingle for the next half hour with my little elf shoes. Um, the other thing is um, I realize for some of you, um, your experience with Polar Express um, isn't actually in the movie. Um, it's through the book. Uh, at least that's how I grew up on the book, and then the movie came out later. Um, but because the series is Christmas at the Movies, we're talking about the movie, The Polar Express. Um, and what I think is so interesting uh, that I never realized until I watched The Polar Express again this, this week um, was that the most important moment, at least in my perception, the most important moment in the movie happens within the first eight minutes. And that was a very abbreviated version of the eight minutes. Um, but here you have a young boy um, who is at kind of a crossroads in his life um, that, that time in his life where he starts to grow up and uh, belief or faith isn't quite as easy um, as it used to be. And he's asking himself, do I believe in Santa Claus or not? Because he's grown up under the magical idea uh, that there is a jolly old man who lives in the North Pole, and then for whatever reason, because he's so jolly, I guess, um, he comes once a year and drops off a bunch of gifts. And what a nice, nice guy. And then uh, he grows up, and he starts asking questions, and he starts looking at the data, and he finds out um, that uh, most of the uh, Santas in the mall um, aren't actually real. Um, I don't know if we have any kids. I hope not. I hope you all went to kids <laughs> today. Um, but uh, that there are books um, that say that the North Pole is inhospitable um, to life, um, and that really there is no way a Santa Claus, let alone a whole bunch of elves and some reindeer, could live on the North Pole. And he has come to a point in his life where he has almost made up his mind that Santa doesn't exist. But there is now one massive problem to that idea. And it's because there is a giant locomotive train sitting in his driveway. And then he goes out to the train that is in his driveway to see what it's all about. And a conductor steps down, uh, a guy who sounds a lot like Tom Hanks, and says, hey, are you coming? In fact, he actually said this, well, you coming? And he says, where? And he says, the North Pole. This is the Polar Express. And I think, though most of us, if we've ever seen the movie, just kind of skip past this part, that this is the movie-defining question. What he answers to this question will determine how not only the rest of his New Year, or Christmas Eve, excuse me, his Christmas Eve goes, but in all fairness, as if you've read the book or you know how the story goes, what he will believe for the rest of his life, even when that silver bell he gets at the end doesn't ring for other people. It's that moment, I think, that we all actually have in common. In fact, it happens more often than we may consider. Um, but it's that moment of, well, you coming? And it's all not like life is a magical train ride by any extent. These are moments in our lives where we have a decision to make. And we're standing, looking kind of in a way, figuratively speaking at least, on the, at the train, the train's direction, the train of our life's direction, and we're wondering, is this train going to take us to a new place? Is it worth 
climbing aboard this new thing, whatever that thing may be. And perhaps there's even someone, which sometimes makes it even more complicated, there's a someone involved in that decision, and they're asking, well, you coming? And perhaps it's a kind of a game-changing moment. I mean, perhaps this is a decision, and, and maybe you haven't made one recently, but certainly in the past, where you kind of know that the stakes for this moment of answering this question will make a difference in how your life ends up. And we sit there, and then we ask ourselves questions. Well, what do I do? And is this the right decision to make, or is this the right decision to make? Now, some of us have experienced this in uh, many, many different ways. Um, from a professional perspective, uh, many of us who uh, have had experience or are experienced in um, uh, the business world, um, you know, this could be a business venture, an opportunity. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, I got this great idea, and, and you're in a place in life where you're kind of considering maybe taking this person up on this career change or this new direction, or maybe you feel kind of, um, uh, of restless in your current position, and so you're wondering, like, hey, is this my next step? Should I go this direction? Or, or maybe you're looking at an educational change. Hey, should I go back to school? Do I need to go back to school to accomplish what I want to accomplish? We have this in relationships all the time. Someone essentially, figuratively, has put to us the question, well, you, will you come in? You know, do, do you, do you want to have a friendship, or do you want to date? And for some of us, um, this is like an easy question to answer, like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're gorgeous. You're handsome. I would be silly not to date you. And so it's easy. But for some of us, it's not always that simple. We wonder, is this the right move? Because then when there's a relationship, then there's complexities, and there's feelings, and feelings are hard. And for some of us, um, this has happened, in fact, at the end of a relationship that we kind of saw it coming on the horizon. We've wondered if this moment of decision was going to happen. And you may not have felt entirely like there was a choice in this decision moment. Are you going to make that call? Are you going to separate? And you look at the other side of that and you wonder, well, if I make this decision, will I be lonely? Will I be sad? Will I be heartbroken? Or for some of us, we will be, so we try to fill the gap with another person. We make the decision, but then we try to fill the void that we've created by that decision. For those others of you, um, you may be in a season of life right now where you're waiting. That you're kind of sitting at the foot of that train car, looking around. Or maybe you're waiting for a train car to show up. Like, you would love it if somebody just pulled up in a big locomotive outside your house and said, hey, this is where you need to go. And that would be a relief for you because you really don't know where you're going right now. For the Jesus followers in the room, and I realize that's not all of us, but if you're a Jesus follower, um, there's a lot of these moments in following Jesus. For some of you, uh, you've been away from church and, and faith and all that for a long time, and so you're, you're like your first time maybe back today in church or experience at least a new church, and, and kind of the question that you're wrestling with, and you're checking us out, and you're talking to people, trying to figure it out, is like, am I going to get on board the infused church train in a way? Is this where I'm going to be? Is Jesus worth really following? And so we're always hit up with these decisions, small and big. 
And even in these moments, um, in the middle of these moments right now, um, even if you're not in it, you can certainly look back at these moments and kind of think to yourself, in these moments where you have to make a decision, there's a little bit of urgency sometimes, isn't there? Like, you feel like you kind of have to make a decision now. Like, if you wait a couple weeks, it's just not going to be the same, or, or that, that weight on your shoulders is so much that you feel like you just have to decide so you can be free of that weight. And in those moments, I think there's a lot of emotions, but I think one stands out kind of above all of them. Sure, there's anxiety in a big decision. Sure, there's second guessing, but one kind of just steps above the rest, informs the rest of your emotions. And that one, and we've talked about it a lot, is fear. And I certainly think that something our young man in this story felt a little bit at that moment when he's like, are you coming? I don't know. I'm not sure. What, what if, the what ifs, you know, in your mind start rolling, like, well, what if it's a waste of time? What if, what if I'm going to invest in it and I'm going to lose? What if, what if somebody's going to reject me in this process? What if, what if, what if, what if? And so it's hard to process through this. And the hardest part about fear, the reason fear steps into these big decisions is something we've talked about often when it comes to fear, is fear is driven from the unknown. When we're most afraid, there are, generally speaking, the most unknown factors in the decision. The unknown implications, not just for the short term, but for the long term. The greater the unknown, the greater the fear. Is this train on the right direction? Is this where I want to end up? How will this play out in the end? And you're sitting at the base of those steps of the train trying to figure out, can I overcome this fear or not? Am I getting on the train? Am I getting on the right train? I don't know, but can I take that step? I don't know. Some of my most favorite moments in the Christmas story are the moments um, that actually happen uh, a few hundred years before the Christmas story that we know really well actually takes place. The actual birth of Jesus. That's why we celebrate Christmas, is it's the birth, birth of Jesus. See, the Christmas story, the birth and, and eventually his life and death and resurrection, didn't just come out of nowhere. I mean, for those of us who grew up in church, you know, it's just been a part of our lives. Whether you walked away from church or not, it's just something that you do. And especially in American culture, Christmas is a thing that happens every year. Regardless of whether you want it to or not, it happens. But Jesus did not just happen. It wasn't like one day, nobody expected it, and then he showed up, and then, whoa, who's this guy, and we've got to figure this guy out. No, no, no. People expected Jesus, at least in principle, maybe in not how it actually played out. But they were looking for what was called a Messiah. They were expecting, they were waiting for a Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew translation of the word chosen one. He's the chosen one. The one who would, um, there are so many promises, the one who would deliver them from evil and, and who would restore them and essentially would make everything right. So in a lot of Jewish people's mind, they were imagining like this fearsome warrior king who was just going to like throw off the yoke of the Roman Empire who was occupying um, Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. And so that's what they had in mind. 
But they believed that there would be a man who would come and they, he would be the Messiah. And hundreds, and that was because hundreds and hundreds of years before angels and shepherds and frankincense and myrrh, there were prophets. And the prophets gave what we call messianic prophecies. Now, if you're not sure what in the world I mean by this, that is completely okay. This is a fancy way. This is the, um, I paid for seminary, so I should probably use it, kind of way of saying uh, prophecies about Jesus. That's pretty much what this is, just prophecies about Jesus. And there are, in fact, depending on who's counting and how you categorize uh, the prophecy about Jesus, there are about 60, 65 some prophecies that have been directly linked to this man we know as Christians as Jesus. And if you go through the Old Testament, if you go home today and you pull out, dust off that Bible, pull it off the shelf, out of the bookshelf, find it in the, buried in a closet somewhere, you pull that thing out and you open to the Old Testament and you can read through the major and minor prophets and every so often you'll hear some things that if you grew up in church are kind of familiar to you. And those are these prophecies about this coming chosen one, this coming Messiah. Now, I realize for some of you, because I was agnostic at one point in my life, and so I understand for some of you, um, talking about prophecies is like almost a point where you kind of draw the line. It's like that is overly spiritual, uh, and it's just kind of weird, okay? And so if that's you, and you struggle with this idea of prophecies, that is completely okay. You do not have to be thoroughly convinced that prophecies actually happen to get today. All I'm asking you to do today is to hear what we're going to read, hear the story and how it played out in history, because uh, historians do not argue the authenticity of the characters you're going to read and hear about today, and just wrestle with the implications. That's all I'm asking. So the messianic prophecy, or the prophecy about Jesus that we're going to talk about today, comes, um, is told by a man named Isaiah. And Isaiah told many prophecies, and in fact, many of those 65 that I referenced earlier came from Isaiah. He had a lot to say. Isaiah is a pretty big, we consider him a major prophet because he, he, he gave a lot of prophecies. Anyways, and he um, would give prophecies, and uh, many of these prophecies were actually written down by a scribe. In particular, his name was Baruch, and he was Isaiah's scribe, and he writes what Isaiah had to say. And then, after they wrote it down, they copied it meticulously over and over and over again for 2,700 years so that we could read 2,700-year-old words today. And now we know that as the book of Isaiah. Specifically, we're going to be in chapter 9. Now, before we jump in, I have to set the scene for what's happening. Now, for some of you, this is going to kind of seem a little familiar. If you were here last year, um, reason one is if you were here last year during the Christmas season, um, we actually talked about this moment in history. We're going to look at a different chapter, but we talked about this very same moment, so it may seem familiar to you. And two, the second reason why I think this may be familiar to you is because we're picking up in the middle of a story where one man had to make a pretty big decision. It was a moment of decision, just like in the movie and just like we've experienced in our lives. The only difference between us and this particular individual is he was a king. And so his decisions just didn't have impact on his family and his friends and his co-workers. His implications, or his decisions had implications for a whole nation. 
and his name was Ahaz. And I, I brought a picture of him along. Um, this is just a coin. Um, it may not be actually him, but beside the point. Um, so Ahaz, um, he was the king of Judah. And so I brought a map along so you can kind of follow what was happening here, right down to here, the kingdom of Judah. Now Judah at the time, if, if you recognize this shape on a map, a modern day map, this is Israel, but this is Israel in about 700 B.C., and because of a civil war in Israel, the kingdom of Israel split into two separate kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. And Ahaz was the king over the southern kingdom, or Judah. That's why sometimes when you read through the Old Testament, it can be exceptionally confusing because depending on what point in history you are in, sometimes the nation of Israel is just a group of people wandering through a desert. Sometimes they're a nation under a mighty king, and sometimes they're complete disasters, which they kind of are at this point in the story. Now, Ahaz, in his perception, is in a pretty dire moment of his kingship because he has a decision before him that will mean the difference of survival, mean the success of him as a king, or the demise of him as a king, at least in his perception. He is uh, thinking that the kingdom of Israel and the king of Israel, they're going to uh, buddy up with some nearby neighbors, and they're going to come and get him, and they're going to take him out. And they're going to take over the kingdom of Judah. And he does not want that to happen. Because as you probably know, just growing up and reading some history books, that no king wants to be known for, in fact, you probably won't even be known for anything, if you're the king who loses their kingdom. That's like a bad king. And he doesn't want to be a bad king. Nobody really wants to be a bad king. But he doesn't want to lose his kingdom. He doesn't want to lose his power. And there are a lot of unknowns in his life right now. And what happens when there are unknowns, when we don't know what happens? What, what emotion comes up inside of us? Fear, yeah. Fear. In fact, if we skip two chapters back, we're going to be in chapter 9, but in, in chapter 7, um, it, it said, the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken. They were shaken. They were afraid. In fact, God specifically tells Isaiah to tell Ahaz the king. He tells him, be careful, Ahaz, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Because Ahaz was afraid. He's looking at two big decisions, two decisions. He had two decisions. Back to our map here for just a second. He had two decisions he had to make. The first option that he had before him was he could team up with someone. He could do something about his predicament. So he was thinking that he'd go up here to the Assyrian Empire and he'd say, hey, hey guys. In fact, he's kind of enemies with these guys, but he's like, you know what? I could make friends with them and then we're going to make like a kingdom of Israel sandwich. Okay? We're going to just squeeze the kingdom of Israel and they're not going to attack us if they know there's a chance that the Assyrian Empire could invade them from the north. And I'm going to make friends with my enemies to get my way and secure my power. Or, option two. And option two is the option that Isaiah brings before him from God. He's kind of like the mouthpiece of God. And Isaiah sits before Ahaz and says, Ahaz, do not, do not succumb to fear. Do not team up with the Syrian Empire. Instead, be patient. Wait and trust the Lord. And I don't know about you, but growing up in church, that was always like the go-to. 
Nah, you got a problem in your life? Just, just trust the Lord. Just, just, are, 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 you, are you afraid? Oh, no, no, you just got to trust the Lord. And for me as a teenager, that was like, that is not helpful. Because that is not going to help me figure out this new dating thing I got going on. And what are these things coming out from under my armpits? And I smell, and I'm just supposed to trust the Lord during this very difficult time in my life, and that is just not the ideal sometimes. And I get that. In fact, I think we can all empathize a little bit with ahas in this moment of like, what are my options again? What are my options? I mean, let's be honest, ourselves, Christian or not Christian, I mean, what would you really decide? What would you really decide? Come on, like, what are your options? Your options are this, do something or do nothing. And when you do nothing, you got to trust God's promise. You could do something, try to prevent it, try to secure the situation and, and, and keep bad things from happening, or do what God is saying through Isaiah and do nothing. And instead, trust in God's promise. Now, maybe if you know how the story pans out, it's easy for you to feel like you could make the right decision in this moment. But let's not forget that pesky thing called fear just kind of always creeps back into our hearts. Well, maybe I messed up. Maybe it's me. What if I do the wrong thing? Fear. I mean, think about the boy in the movie sitting, or standing, excuse me, on the steps deciding whether or not to get on that train. He's got safety behind him at his house, just up his driveway, or he's going to get on a train because a complete stranger invited him to, to take him to the North Pole. It seems a little crazy to do such a thing, to do nothing but say, you know what, I'm going to trust you. And that is something I think we are really, we have a really hard time doing. In fact, I think it's a little bit in our culture the American culture. We have a society that is not exactly built on trust and promises, okay? Promises don't get you exceptionally far in a capitalistic society, in American society. In fact, it really, our culture just makes you afraid to trust others. We're kind of afraid to trust others, and in, in, in all fairness, afraid may be too strong of a word sometimes, but essentially fear is at the root of things like hesitancy. You know, sometimes we're hesitant to trust others, but what is really at the core? Well, it's an unknown. It's a fear, so therefore I'm hesitant. I'm not sure I want to trust you. I'm concerned. Why are you concerned? Because I just don't know. Why? Because of fear. Well, but I promise. Yeah, but promises don't always get you very far. That's why, what do we do in our culture? We make contracts, right? You wouldn't enter into a big agreement or a financial agreement, generally speaking, without a contract. And even if, if you do and you don't have a contract, part of you sits there and wonders, maybe I should have had a contract. And some of you have even been burned because you didn't have a contract and you know you should have. That's why we have things like contracts, because we don't trust. We can't trust. That's why we have non-disclosure agreements, so that we won't spill the beans, because people don't trust. 
I mean, imagine. Imagine if you were the boss. Maybe you are the boss, and so this is easy. But imagine you were the boss tomorrow morning, Monday morning. You have someone coming to interview for your team, okay? And they sit down in front of you, and you go through the, the interview process, and it gets kind of to the end of the interview, okay? And then they use this phrase, okay, in response to one of your questions. Well, I guess you're just going to have to trust me. I promise I'll come through for you. Okay, let's be honest. Do you trust them more or less? Probably at least the same, if not a little less. I mean, in today's culture, the words, you can trust me, I promise. Like, red flag, I don't know if I can trust you. I mean, come on, married people, okay? You know how this goes. Even though you have committed to loving one another and trusting one another for the rest of your days, it is a lot easier to say it that one day for that half-hour little ceremony than it is to live it sometimes, right? I mean, you've probably heard the words, honey, I promise I won't forget it this time. Trust me. And what's the little voice in your head saying? Better have plan B, right? I promise I will be there on time. Well, I'm just going to plan that you aren't and hope that you will be. I promise I will go to church next week. I roll. We're naturally skeptical to trust. We're afraid to trust. We're afraid because the one thing we can trust is ourselves. And that was the dilemma for Ahaz, wasn't it? Trust God, trust myself. Well, I have options. I can do it. But if I surrender, if I let go, gosh, the last thing I want to be is the king who did nothing and lost everything. And history will remember Ahaz, the guy who said he was going to trust the Lord, so he did nothing and then got completely bulldozed by his neighbor countries. When you have to rely on someone else to get where you're going, it is difficult. When you have to consider, especially if you're not a faith person, and you have to consider trusting God to get where you want to go, it's difficult. And only, let's be honest, only when you get stuck do you think about God. I mean, even if you're not Christian, you've gotten to a point in sometimes in your life where you got so stuck, you just felt like the only option was God. So you prayed that one time. And that was about it. Because those moments of decision are so challenging and it is so easy to trust ourselves and trust others, let alone God. And here's the other big thing you got to know about fear. Here's the other thing that plays around in our heads all the time, especially men. Not saying it doesn't in women either. I'm just saying, men, we have a terrible time with this part. What if I'm wrong? We're afraid to be wrong. I mean, the boy at the Polar Express. Okay, think about this. If he gets on that train, he is making a decision to say, well, if I end up showing up at the end of this journey in the North Pole, and there really are elves, and there's really reindeer, and there is really a Santa, guess what I am? Wrong. 
And I don't want to be wrong. I don't like being wrong. So it is a lot easier for my fear to take over and me to just stay where I am and let that train pass me by. Aha, thinking the same exact thing. Well, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm that guy who trusts the Lord and I end up being wrong? I have seen this. You probably have seen this in your life. I've seen this cripple emotionally people. I mean, I use that word and I mean it. It cripples people emotionally. They sit there and they, they know they should reconcile the relationship. They know they should grow. They know they should engage with the church. They know they should have faith. They want to have faith. But they sit there. And if they engage in reconciliation, if they engage with the church, if they engage with God, it means that for a time in their life, for a part of their life, for a moment, for a decision, they may have been wrong. And that fear that they would have to admit that they were wrong, they would have to be vulnerable and accept that there is a chance that other people could ridicule them, to make them feel bad, to judge them for their decisions, is enough to have them walk away completely. To say it is not worth acknowledging that for the past 20 years I have walked away from Jesus and you know what? It is so difficult to come back because then I would have to admit that I was wrong for a part of my life. I was wrong in how I raised my kids and now we're working to reconcile that now. I was wrong in that relationship and divorce probably wasn't the only option. Those are exceptionally painful, painful moments. But we know, there's just this subconscious knowing in our minds and our hearts that says, if I engage, I may have to admit that I'm wrong, and I don't want to. And instead, they walk away, and at the worst, you blame. Right? You want to know why people blame other people? It's because they don't want to admit they were wrong. They would rather blame the friendships, blame the church, blame the pastor, blame Jesus, blame God, instead of admit that they maybe had something to do with it. Let's be honest, personally, how often has that fear of being wrong, admitting that perhaps you don't know the world as you should, kept you from getting on that train? God even, even tells Ahaz, what does he tell Ahaz? Don't be afraid. But he knows Ahaz isn't going to listen. And so what does God do? God says, I'm going to give you a really clear picture of where this train is heading. God does something that in my mind, my heart, is absolutely incredible. He tells Ahaz how the story is going to end. He doesn't say how they're going to get there necessarily, because guess what? He leaves that up to Ahaz to decide how they're going to get there. He's just saying, it's going to happen. This is how the story is going to end, or in a lot of ways, at least in a Christian perception, this is how the story is going to begin. Ahaz, if you get on this train, I'm going to tell you where it's going. It may take a few hundred years, Ahaz, but you're going to be known for the guy who was on the train, not the one who walked away from the train. And let's be honest, my friends, how many of us, in the midst of a difficult decision and a painful decision, would love to know how it ends. You may not, you would be even okay, I think most of us would be okay not knowing how we got there, what was going to happen to get us there per se, 
but that we knew that if we made this decision at the end, it was going to be okay. We would feel a lot better. In fact, we wouldn't be afraid. Because here's the takeaway that I want you to get today. You don't have to fear when the path forward is clear. You do not have to fear if you know that the path is clear. doesn't mean you're not going to get bumped, bruised, you're going to suffer a little bit, you're going to have to grow a little bit. It is not without its challenging, but you know at the end you're going to get there. Then you don't have to fear. And God is reaching into the story and is going to tell Ahaz, I'm going to give you as much as I can. And I'm just asking you to trust me. And here's what Ahaz says, or excuse me, here's what Isaiah, God says through Isaiah to Ahaz. He says, beginning in chapter 9, uh, verse 2, he says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This may sound familiar to you. It's in Christmas carols and things like that. Um, on this, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. I mean, come on, when you're in a dark room, Okay, because it gets dark early now, right? And you're walking through the house. I got to make sure all the lights are down so Elliot can sleep. When you're walking through in a dark room, what do you feel? You feel confused. You feel a little unsure. Not a little, not, you're not sure-footed. You don't know exactly where you're going. And, and you can feel your way through, right? But it is challenging, okay? And in fact, for some of you, you may be a little afraid because it's dark and it's tough to see. What do you do when you're in a dark room? You go for your phone, that little thing right there, right? The flashlight, right? And you flip it on. You know how I know you do it? It's because it's right there on everybody's phone. It's so easy now. Why? Because we're always in dark rooms, and when we're in dark rooms, we're looking for a quick light to show the way. Because a light provides stability. A light provides direction. If you don't have a light, you're going to step on one of these. Okay? And this particular one, I've stepped on twice now in this last week. Twice. Okay? That is a perfect analogy for parenting, by the way. If you're thinking about kids, just step on one of these twice. Okay? It's like, wait, who's, who's the crazy one here stepping on this twice? Okay? And it is not fun. But with a light, you can avoid them. A light, you have clarity. And this is what Ahaz, or excuse me, Isaiah, God through Isaiah was bringing to the table. He was saying, when you're trying to make a decision, Ahaz, I'm going to tell you where we're going. It may take 700 years to get to this Christmas story, this light, this great light, but we're going to get there. And I want to tell you how you'll know when you've seen this great light. A couple verses later, and you can read this whole uh, on your own later. I just, um, for the sake of time, had to kind of cut some things out. For to us, a child is born. Ahaz, you'll know the light. My people will know the light when you see a child born. To us, a son is given. This is 700 years before Jesus even is on planet Earth. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Got a question? You got a problem? He understands, as we talked about last week. He's been there, done that. He can relate. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, because a father takes ownership in his children, takes responsibility for his children, loves his children. As we learned last week, that's what God did for us. Prince of peace. Prince of peace. Unfortunately, 
Ahaz decides to team up with Assyria. And kind of ironically, I guess, Assyria takes over Judea, or Judah, excuse me, and takes over his kingdom. He puts his trust in Assyria, and Assyria betrays him. And he loses everything. And that's why most of you don't even know who he was, because he was a failed king. But what we can take away from this story, what Christmas, Christmas means, I think, in part, is we can look at this whole story and bring it to these moments of decision and say, do I trust God? Do I want to trust God? Well, just look at God's track record. God has a track record of saying, you know what? You don't have to fear because I am always one step ahead. I'm always looking for the long term. I got a long term game going on. If you get on this train, again, I'm not promising it's going to be easy. I'm not promising you're going to have to grow because I'm all about growth. If I love you, I'm not going to leave you the same as which I found you, right? Parents, you would never do that with your kids. You never say, well, you're just bad at this. No, you're just going to help them. You're going to love them. You're going to care for them. That's what God wants to do too. And so there might be struggle, but the path is clear. The end result I'm telling you about right now, the decision is yours. Do you trust me? Are you willing to get on? Are you willing to say, you know what? I might be wrong. I might not be the best person to trust after all. In fact, some of your greatest sufferings have been because of you. So I'm not always sure it's the wisest thing to do to trust yourself all the time. And as Tom Hanks's character tells the little boy as he gets off the train at the very end of the movie, he says, this is a quote, one thing about trains, it doesn't matter where you're going, which I'm not sure entirely I agree with, but what matters, what matters most, this is the movie-defining moment, what matters most is deciding to get on. Because if you don't get on, you'll never know. You may end up being wrong, and in the meantime, you'll probably stay very afraid. But God's promises, the Christmas story is, you don't have to be afraid. I got it covered. Trust me. 700 years. The story, the Bible story is a couple thousand years long. Got it covered. May not be your ideal, but I got you covered. And I'll get you there if you just decide to, if you at least wrestle with this idea of trusting me and getting on the train. All right, let me uh, ask you to bow your heads and we'll pray and sing a song and get you out of here. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, my prayer this morning is for all of us, Christian, not Christian, been a Jesus follower for a long time, new to church, back to church for the first time, wherever we are, whatever stories we have coming into this morning. My prayer for us as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, we're just reflecting, we're praying. My prayer for us, Lord, is that we would at the very least wrestle with the reality of Ahaz's moment of decision. That he had a decision and he chose to go one way, but what if he had gone the other way? What if he had trusted? 
What if he had not been worried about the wrong? What if he had put his faith in the God who said, and has a track record of getting it done, making it happen, following through with his promises? That we would wrestle with that story because Christmas is not just a time of celebration. It's a fulfillment of a promise that we don't have to fear because God's had, God has a pretty clear idea of what he wants to do. Now, he leaves us free to decide, but Lord, my prayer is that you would help us to wrestle through that, to trust in those emotional, painful, challenging moments. And that you would come through in such a way where when we decide to trust, when we decide to have faith, when we decide to get on that train, we will know, we will be affirmed that we have made the right decision. And you will help us every step of that journey. Lord, that's my prayer. As we go home, as we go out in the week, go out in the world this week, as, as we go back to work, as we spend time with family over the next couple of weeks, that we would remember that the Christmas story is an opportunity for, for us to trust a God who fulfills his promises. We don't have to fear.